Future Air Capabilities Fully Comprehensive Cover or Third-Party Fire and Theft A 58-minute presentation held in the Cormorant Hall at the Joint Services Command and Staff College, Shrivenham on the 11th of January 2006. The speaker is Sir Brian Burridge, Senior Strategic Marketing Advisor for Finn Mechanica UK Limited. Sir Brian Burridge. Welcome to this third annual lecture of the Airpower Group here at the JSCSC, providing, we hope, an opportunity for those in the college and a little wider to meet some of those in the Airpower Group and understand a little of what we do. Welcome to, to society members attending and chief executive, thank you for being here. Um, and uh, also a particular welcome to members of the Airpower Group. There is a, uh, a thin veneer of marketing about this, of course. Um, on the one hand, and I say this passionately from the heart, we do need thinking airmen. All nations need thinking airmen. And frankly, there isn't enough of them. Whilst you're in the service, uh, you are provided with a certain amount of education and development, but it is true to say your horizons must go much wider. One way of doing that is to be a member of the Learned Society, which deals in aerospace and air power, the Royal Aeronautical Society. And I commend it to you because it, it would be difficult to find another organization which brought together the key stakeholders in aerospace and air power. What would I say? Practitioners like you lot, the industry like me, academics like Christina Goulter, who is uh, also a member of the air power group, and those from right across the sector, technologists, scientists, researchers, the lot. And it is a melting pot of ideas and understanding. And the thin veneer is that at the back you'll find some promotional literature for the Royal Aeronautical Society. And I, I seriously do ask you to consider whether that really should be your intellectual and spiritual home. It is, of course, just round the corner from the RAF Club. Also think about the Air Power Group if you do decide to join. The only criteria is that you should have an interest in air power in its broadest sense. So that's the marketing, well, that's the marketing for now anyway. On with the lecture. The road system in the UK is a dangerous place. There are about 40,000 serious accidents in the UK every year with roughly the equivalent impact of a 747 crashing every month. About a quarter of a million people each year sustain minor injuries. 31,000 sustain major industries and about 3,000 die every year. One in three young male drivers will write off a car in their first year of driving. Young women are half as likely to do so. One quarter of the convictions for causing death by dangerous driving are for drivers under 20. But this group represents just 3% of all drivers. A quarter of all drivers under 21 who have an accident lose control of their car, and over 130,000 under 25-year-olds were convicted of driving without insurance, more than half of the total convictions for that offence in this country. Now, we as members of the law-abiding general public seek to manage the resulting risk in a number of ways. 
One such way is by taking out insurance, and the level of cover we decide depends on a number of factors. And not least, I would suggest your proximity to the under-25 group of boy racers. In essence, we make a judgment on our likely exposure to risk and the chance of that risk becoming manifest in an accident. But we're also mindful of the cost-benefit equation of the premium that we're asked to pay versus the value of the car that we're trying to protect and the importance of our no-claims bonus as a function of our credibility. So we decide between third-party cover, third-party fire and theft, or fully comprehensive, with the ability to choose from a number of add-ons, such as windscreen insurance and protected no-claims cover. The females amongst you who are shrewd enough to insure through Sheila's wheels also get a free counselling service 24 hours a day whether your problem is related to driving or not. So, with all this in mind, this lecture will look at the risk context represented by the world of the future. Then against that backdrop, examine the future relevance of the six core roles of air power. It'll further look at where technology might take us in meeting expectations over capability and examine the related affordability issue. We might then be in a position to answer the question as to what is a sensible insurance policy for the future. How much capability risk can a nation realistically take in reducing the premium it needs to pay? In short, is it really only superpowers who can afford a fully comprehensive policy? And what are the implications for other nations whose cover extends only to third-party fire and theft? Now, it is a natural facet of the human condition to crave for certainty. Equally, it's the norm in Western democracies to wish to assess the extent of their investment in military equipment using operational analysis which itself rests on the requirement for plausible scenarios against which to crunch the numbers. But failed states, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and the nature of international terrorism do not lend themselves to a predictable list of scenarios. The related responses therefore have to come from a flexible menu of capabilities, and we have to be able to deal with uncertainty. And even then, all this represents wars of choice for governments. Now, just to go back to the point in 1979 when Typhoon was on the drawing board as then the European combat fighter, no one really expected the UK to be fighting in the Falklands just three years later. Neither could we have predicted that NATO would have been engaged in two air campaigns in the Balkans during the 90s, nor that the UK would have been in combat in Iraq on two occasions in 1991 and 2003. It was just simply unimaginable. And given that 1979 was still deep in the Cold War era, although it was the year that the SALT II agreement was signed, and also the year that the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, who would have predicted that in 2007, NATO would be engaged in a counterinsurgency campaign in Afghanistan with both ground and air troops? Just simply unimaginable. Of course, 1979 was also the year of the Islamic Revolution in Iran with the fall of the Shah. 
And we now look at Iran through a very different prism with the prospect of the country becoming a nuclear state with the ability to weaponize the technology. The reaction in the region, apart from Israel's short fuse, was for six Gulf Arab nations to announce at the December GCC summit that they intended to acquire peaceful nuclear technology. But King Abdullah of Saudi warned while he was inaugurating that summit that the Arab world was on the brink of exploding because of the escalating conflicts in the Palestinian territories, Iraq and Lebanon. In his unusually strong rhetoric, King Abdullah said, our Arab region is surrounded by unrest and danger. It is almost like a powder keg waiting for a spark to explode. Further east, North Korea remains intransigent and the arms buildup in China continues as the PLA transitions towards becoming a modern, credible force with high-tech Russian weapons providing 80% of recent acquisitions. Prices are low and the freely transferred technology is undoubtedly very good. Kilo-class attack submarines, Su-27, Su-30 fighter aircraft, the Sovereignty Destroyer and the weapon systems to match, not to be sniffed at, any of that. Indigenously, China is about to complete 23 amphibious ships able to ferry tanks and troops across the 160-kilometer-wide Taiwan Strait and 13 submarines to protect them. And according to a New York Times report, their amphibious assault shipbuilding alone equals the entire U.S. Navy shipbuilding since 2002, quoting one U.S. official. And interestingly, China's own third generator, the Xi'an 10, made its public debut in Beijing last week, based entirely on the country's own intellectual property. And General Yang, Deputy General Manager of China Aviation Industry Corporation, said that China has become the world's fourth country that is capable of developing on its own advanced fighter planes, engines, and missiles. We might surmise over the identities of the other three, Russia obviously in Chinese terms, the US definitely, uh, leaving presumably the UK and France to fight it out. But that aside, of more concern, the Chinese government is about to endorse the law forbidding the formal secession of ta Taiwan from China, setting new definitions of separatist activity and penalties for traitors. Taiwan regard the new legislation as representing a legal basis for invasion. Aspects other than the military dimension add to the complexity. Climate change, competition for resources, not least water, the use of energy supplies as an instrument of foreign policy, as very recently between Russia and Belarus, and last year between Russia and Ukraine. The negative effects of globalization, such as the spread of disease, organized crime, and its implications for narcotics and people trafficking and uncontrolled migration. Now, from a US or UK point of view, much of this takes a back seat because of our continued engagement in Iraq and Afghanistan, which dominates our media window on the world. Certainly, these represent a long-term counterinsurgency campaign, definitely in the case of Afghanistan, and of course, the jury's out on Iraq. But in these theaters, there has been a realignment 
of the capabilities that air forces provide. The complexity and texture of the battle space calls for high fidelity I-STAR, while the nature of the enemy activity requires close integration of air and land forces. Combat takes place against a backdrop of tight rules of engagement where tactical imperfections have strategic consequences. As a result, a high premium is placed on air capabilities such as target recognition and precision attack. So what, you might say? Well, three issues fall out of this. Firstly, and I doubt there'd be much disagreement on this, it's extremely unlikely that any Western nation will be faced in the foreseeable future with the need to fight a classic war of national survival. Rather, our future vision remains one of wars of choice. And it follows then that unlike some commentators, I do not characterize the post 9-11 global war on terrorism as a war of national survival. Second, in view of the uncertain world I've outlined, who would be prepared to underwrite the notion that counterinsurgency of the type now seen in Afghanistan and Iraq represents the most likely task in, say, 20 years' time? Thirdly, within this strategic backdrop, air power has to be relevant. In other words, it must contribute to achieving the end state but in as cost-effective way as possible. Research shows that unit costs for combat aircraft typically double every decade, even allowing for inflation. Development costs of fourth and fifth generation fast jet aircraft are equivalent to the production cost of 200. With an F-22 running at a flyaway price of $150 million, and JSF now in the $60 million bracket, plus a bit for Stovall, uh, from a starting point of $30 million, affordability is a real issue. In avionics, Moore's law tells us that in computing generally, microchip data density has doubled approximately every 18 months. We can therefore see why obsolescence is such a big issue in aircraft like Eurofighter, where the long gestation times militate against the convergence of the latest technology with the in-service date. Now, the rule of thumb for fast jet aircraft, for fast jet combat aircraft, is that the ratio of through-life cost to flyaway price is somewhere between three or four to one. So, is Moore's law going to help us, or is it going to push things in the other direction? In other words, are technological gates opening to give us opportunity to make these things more affordable. And this all, to me, represents a challenging agenda. But there is an inherent danger that the burden of economics will focus attention on the problems of current wars at the expense of continued understanding of just what an insurance policy air power represents in the face of this very uncertain world. Here again, choice exists between the different levels of insurance and the premiums we are willing to pay. These are often manifest in rhetoric such as role specialization, niche capabilities, and collaborative procurement of pooled capability, like NATO's AW or new strategic airlift force. More importantly, is the perceived affordability of air capability driving nations 
along a path that is seriously attenuating the roles that they, as nations, could play in future conflicts, and disregarding the key contribution that air power could and should make. So let's have a look at the validity of that fear. Now, a useful starting point is with the effects-based approach. While the UK codifies this as somewhere between 8 and 11 strategic effects, there would actually be little disagreement at strategic level in terms of a conceptual approach among most defense planners in most developed nations. In fact, you know, there is general agreement about this is what encapsulates the effects-based approach. Now, this list in the UK waxes and wanes, but I've used the full list here. Now, the effect of disrupt, destroy, and defeat are where air forces have traditionally concentrated their development. But we now know the future will see a widening application in these areas to suit the more dynamic and unpredictable nature of today's and tomorrow's battle space. In many cases, this requires a joint approach. But for airmen, their contribution in dealing with emerging, dynamic, and time-sensitive targets will demand that we shorten the kill chain process down to single-digit minutes in certain cases. The kill chain, for those not familiar, find, fix, track, target, engage, and assess. Of the remaining strategic effects, deter at number four was the bedrock upon which the Cold War was fought. But this is also at the root of the containment strategies deployed in Iraq from 1991, at incidentally a cost of $1 billion per year, not readily recognized. And less obviously, this same approach of deter against other rogue states comprising President Bush's axis of evil. While coerce, reassure, stabilize, and transform at five to eight, involves our ability to convince protagonists that there is more to be gained by good behavior than bad, which, of course, is a carrot-and-stick approach. The coerce end of the spectrum sees the need to both proportionately and precisely persuade our adversaries to bow to our will. Operations over Bosnia and Kosovo demonstrated the coercive effect, the coercive application of air power, However, the overall effect was not achieved in isolation. It must be part of an integrated diplomatic, economic, and joint military strategy. The same is true of the remaining spectrum of effects, hence the growing understanding in the comprehensive approach, or more broadly understood as the interagency approach, which uses cross-government departments in order to achieve effect that defense long has been unable to achieve on its own. Resilience is about the ability of a state to prevent and withstand attacks on its people. The recent hugely increased focus on homeland security in terms of the terrorist threat has tended to obscure the traditional responsibility of a sovereign state to secure its own borders, its maritime boundaries, and where they exist, and very importantly, its airspace. This is why states continue to hold fighter aircraft and controllers at instant readiness on quick reaction alert. And it also en encompasses expertise in disaster response and search and rescue. Insight concerns the need to understand the dynamics of the world 
and generate comprehension of linkages between cause and effect. And clearly, intelligence and surveillance assets are absolutely key, but never underestimate the importance of human intelligence or human. And their success helps states to identify potential crises early enough to engage and possibly prevent, number 11, their occurrence. And during major international events now, it is absolutely axiomatic in the case of things like the Athens Olympics, the papal ceremonies, G8 summits, whatever, to find there's an AW aircraft orbiting over the scene of action, looking with its surveillance capability in a counter-terrorist mode with fighter aircraft on a very short string. Now, we might ask, from the benefit of an affordability perspective, what is the opportunity to dine a la carte off this list? Could we envisage a state choosing to possess a locker or a golf bag consisting only of the ability to generate resilience or gain insight and prevent things occurring in its own territory? Well, of course we could, but perhaps it would be best typified as third-party-only cover. To be able to disrupt, destroy, and defeat would require an order of magnitude greater capability at least. And the degree of investment involved would depend on the payload range and risk involved in a nation's aspirations. And to quote the United States Air Force Chief of Staff, General Buzz Mosley, the soul of an Air Force is range and payload and the ability to access targets on a global scale. Absolutely fundamental tenet of air power, which over recent years has been forgotten by many. Unless an Air Force can do this on a deployed basis, if necessary, but over strategic distances, they represent just third-party fire and theft cover. More importantly, the ability to deter and coerce across the spectrum of scenarios, comprehensive cover, rests on the ability to apply military violence at the strategic level. Self-evidently, this is the bedrock of deterrence theology, nuclear deterrence theology, which leads to states acquiring those nuclear weapons. But it applies just as readily to conventional warfare and is behind nations such as the US and the UK, acquiring weapons like Tomahawk and Storm Shadow. In these cases, the weapons themselves may not have strategic reach, but the platform weapon combination very definitely has. And of course, you could say absolutely the same thing about aircraft carriers. I would like to say that in developed nations, the audit trail from effect to capability is used as the mechanism by which to make coherent selections from the menu. I judge that I would be deluding myself, but it is true to say that there is a major cost delta between third-party fire and theft capability, capability cover, and comprehensive cover. So let's look a little deeper into this now and, and consider the six core roles of air power and it's these, either individually or in combination, that achieve those effects. And they're listed here and um, I shall uh, go through them in order but with air command and control left till last. Let's start on counter-air operations. The first task of air power has to be to gain control of the air. The fundamental truth for all military operations is that we need and will continue to need control of the air to deploy, 
employ, sustain and recover our forces. Without it, land and maritime forces simply cannot operate at an acceptable level of risk. Both at home and on deployed operations, the speed and manner in which a threat can develop may be sudden. This demands both wide area and persistent surveillance. Linked to this, we need an integrated command and control structure able to direct the appropriate response in a time-critical manner. Battle of Britain was pretty much the first time-sensitive targeting challenge. The final piece of the network is the weapon platform, and it's thus pointless and inaccurate to describe Typhoon as a relic of the Cold War. We are always going to need interceptors, but we must give them swing-roll capability, as the UK, thankfully, is doing with Typhoon. Control of the air is the key that unlocks air power's potential. To lose the ability to achieve it would be a significant threat to any nation's effectiveness. This has been somewhat clouded by recent experience. The supermez around Baghdad was a serious threat in 2003. But okay, there weren't the caps of fighters waiting to take us on. Same was true in the Balkans air campaign. For the UK, the last time serious military endeavor was attempted without air superiority was in the Falklands War. And that was a close-run thing. So what new threats must we anticipate to stay ahead of the game? Of course, the Su-30 flanker is available to any nation with hard currency, but missile technology is moving on apace. Long-range surface-to-air missiles like the Russian S-400, already with a 200-kilometer range with identified development potential of 400 kilometers, presents tomorrow's threat. And in both these cases, remember where China buys its arms. This weapon system changes the standoff versus stealth equation, the penetration equation and places in jeopardy the way in which we use high-value assets such as I-Star platforms and tankers. Do not forget also that many existing SAM systems familiar in the Soviet era are being upgraded using modern processors available commercially off the shelf and, more to the point, improved missile propellants. And both these aircraft suffered just that fate in the Balkans. It also causes us to think carefully about suppression of enemy air defenses, or SEAD, a current weakness in NATO's infantry. And there's just a spectrum here then, ranging from the obvious hard kill or kinetic approach with a greatly increased accent on precision and soft kill relying on advanced electronics. Clearly, there is obviously a case where a mix is required. And we also need to ensure that our networks are resilient and robust, and this in the face of possible physical attack from microwaves or hackers. So situational awareness, self-protection, and lethality all become preeminent issues for future counter-air capability. Having gained control of the air, making maximum use of air's reach, speed, and ubiquity is paramount in delivering strategic effect, or air operations for strategic effect. Now, delivering air for strategic effect is about the ability to deliver direct, decisive effect through tactical actions.
It is not confined to the notion of strategic intercontinental bombers. But of course, the Vulcans in Operation Black Buck did put a bomb through the runway at Port Stanley in May 1982. The classic and rather more nuanced case cited by air power scholars is the Israeli raid on Iraq's Osirak reactor in 1981. And the ultimate comprehensive cover approach is best described by, again, General Mosley with the USAF's mantra. I have to be able to either continue surveillance, hold at risk, which presumably means at high redness, or strike targets anywhere on the surface of the Earth, and command and control, etc., against a global setting. Now, to that end, the United States Air Force is drawing up plans for a long-range, stealthy bomber with entry to service in 2018. Few nations, if any, will be in a position to afford that capability. However, either working autonomously or cued by other intelligence assets, tactical assets can be just as adept at combating threats such as terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, which require swift and responsive systems. Operations need to maximize surprise, reaching deep into the adversary's center of gravity, and apply both tempo and persistence. But our targeting needs to be proportionate, discriminate, humane, and subject to military necessity. And I quote from the Geneva Convention. This means a flexible range of actions to achieve decisive effect. Advanced non-kinetic action about which we simply do not know enough, or when required, precise, low-yield kinetic action, will make this a reality. But all of it places a very high premium on situational awareness. But missing from the equation is a real understanding of how to recognize and measure the cognitive effects which result, the behavioral change, if you will, which result from this type of strategic action. Staying with decisive effect, a number of nations attach great importance to their partnership with the U.S. on the Joint Strike Fighter, given that it represents the first excursion into stealth for many nations, which represents a new avenue for stealth protection. This delivers the potential for early entry penetrative operations designed to kick the door down, but we should not be seduced into forgetting the information requirements. Delivering precise effects calls for rapid, accurate, and complete data distribution. Thus, network-enabled capability must be tried, tested, and absolutely axiomatic in our way of operating by the JSF era of the next decade. On to integrated air operations. Integrating capability across the combat components, land, maritime, and special forces in this case, greatly increases the effectiveness and tempo of joint operations. It was the primary lesson from the war in Iraq. Integrated air operations benefit from air power's flexibility, responsiveness, precision, and different perspective. This in turn can allow lighter land forces to confront an enemy without increasing risk, but it does require a clear understanding between components. 
Only then can they work seamlessly together in difficult or urban terrain. Often now, the call will be for aircraft to achieve effect through non-kinetic means, such as a show of force. There thus has to be genuine cross-component understanding of the relative methods, strengths, and vulnerabilities of each player. And there is no point in any of the players pretending that they are invincible without the contribution of the other members of the team. But from an air power perspective, assured effect is not and cannot be about meeting every request. The efficient allocation of scarce high-value assets is a key requirement of air power command and control and results in the need to be judged at the operational level of war rather than at the level of tactical parochialism. To deliver the synergistic effect of components working together depends upon shared situational awareness. From this, better decisions are made and tempos generated. Again, the necessity for a linking network is clear. And the very nature of expeditionary operations and rapid theater in entry involves a balance between mobility, mass, and firepower. Future land forces equipped as a medium weight force will need responsive and powerful support from the air. Only then can we mitigate the familiar trade-off of speed of response for risk. Just take a look at the apportionment for day, well, for the early days of the 2003 Iraq war. And notice the vast proportion allocated to integrated operations, counter-land operations, close air support, killbox interdiction. Generating shock and surprise is just as key, actually, in air assault by helicopter as part of a maneuver campaign in terms of getting boots on the ground at the right place on the right piece of ground quickly, as it is in close air support. Both are integrated operations that are aimed at generating high tempo. And as things stand now, most nations are short of battlefield lift from helicopters with the right level of self-protection. Equally, many nations are scrabbling to meet the standards required for target recognition in what are very challenging circumstances with the degree of fidelity required by modern rules of engagement. And challenging terrain such as the urban environment also presents particular problems. The battle for Fallujah in November 2004, called Operation Phantom Fury, is important and illustrative in demonstrating air power's advantage when working in the joint battle space. Success in Fallujah on that operation was vital. It removed the ability and impression that insurgents could actually hold ground. It also heralded increased cooperation between air and land operations. So manned aircraft, unmanned aircraft, and troops on the ground worked in unison to deliver decisive effect. And two air contributions contributed significantly, the provision of real-time and persistent ISTAR and the coordinated delivery of kinetic effect from above, working very close, and I mean that in geographical distance, very close to troops in contact. Again, lethality and situational awareness were the key. Rapid global mobility. It's the delivery of initial effect at speed around the world, predominantly, not exclusively, an air activity. However, 
nations must understand the limitations of their aspirations. At a premium is outside lift capability. C-17 Globemaster, currently the aircraft of choice with their unique ability to fly strategic distances yet land on tactical airstrips. UK has long accepted this. NATO has now recognized this in procuring three or four C-17s for the NATO strategic airlift capability shared amongst 13 nations. But let me just give you an example of how important this can be to governments. And I'll give you an example from UK experience. And it's November 2004, and the UK need to mount a short-notice, non-combatant evacuation operation in the Ivory Coast. From conception to execution, it took five days. On day one, the Permanent Joint Headquarters Operational Liaison and Reconnaissance Team arrived in Fieta by C-17. The next day, the MOD received a formal request from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, along with host nation consent. Same day, three Hercules and six crews and movements and communications and Provo support personnel were dispatched to Accra in Ghana. They were used to provide tactical in-theater airlift capability. Meanwhile, C-17 TriStar and BC-10 aircraft were also utilized to spearhead army elements to theater. On day three, the evacuation commenced and was finished the following day. In total, some 212 individuals were evacuated to Accra, including HM Ambassador to the Ivory Coast. By the time all aircraft and personnel had returned to the UK, just five days after the initial reconnaissance team departed, over 200 hours had been flown by RAF air transport aircraft. Clearly, air-to-air -air refueling was also a key capability in achieving this rapid global effect. And note here that the USAF's number one priority now is the replacement of their tanker fleet. And that little cameo, which may seem small in itself, indicates just how important these things can be politically if either they don't happen or they go wrong. Increasingly, though, tankers and transport aircraft need to be integrated into complex operations, requiring their connectivity to the network and the ability to operate on the basis of shared situational awareness. On to ISTAR. The generation of information is a catalyst of much of what I've talked about. The inherent characteristics of air power in terms of height, speed, and reach leverage the laws of physics to great advantage. And sensor development is moving on rapidly. And I'll give some examples where technology is taking us shortly. The significance is in the sensor-to-effect equation. And I've mentioned the need to shorten the kill chain process. Increasingly in maneuver warfare, the shortest possible kill chain is required to maintain tempo and require high level of performance in sensor fusion and information management. And I have a personal view, something of an axe I grind, that there is still much to be done in ISTAR information management before resorting to yet bigger networks and more platforms. In other words, are we making the best of what we already have? In the asymmetric case, it becomes even more vital. ISTAR assets help us establish patterns of behavior among groups of neo-combatants who are cellular in their command and control, diffuse in their activity, and clandestine in their communications. But at some stage, even the most asymmetric of targets has to, for a fleeting moment in time, 
become a symmetric target by communicating or moving. Hence, AirPower's quest to reduce the kill chain to single-digit minutes. And work's going on to see how we can stimulate these networks by using AirPower to make them symmetric for rather longer. Here, of course, we think a lot about UAVs and uh, the range of tactical UAVs is expanding by the day. The range of sensor packages is not, and sensor development is behind the race with airframes. But there is potential coming up. Now, these limitations don't apply quite so much to large UASs as we're required to call them now, simply because they can carry greater payloads. But instead, in areas like the Predator B and the Global Hawk, cost is an issue. The flyaway price of a Global Hawk with its ground station, support and spares is now $130 million, according to the US General Accounting Office. Operating costs are about $26,000 a flying hour. Uh, they're not numbers that could be included in any third-party fire and theft policy. And UASs still present a challenge in terms of interoperability of systems, their vulnerability, their limited capacity to address a wide area of surveillance, their insatiable demand for bandwidth, and their inability to deal with the ambiguity of the battle space in quite the same way as does the human brain. On the plus side, they deal very well with the 3D tasks, the dull, dirty, and dangerous, that underplays it because they can also resolve ambiguity at a number of levels. They can resolve tactical firepower problems just as well as they can answer a strategic commander's critical information requirement. And retasking them is very, very straightforward. They increase standoff ranges, of course, for both kinetic and plausibly in the future non-kinetic or cognitive attack simply by conducting the find element of the find fixed strike beginning of the equation. They also bring us nearer the holy grail of air power, persistence. But persistence to do what? The answer has to be in completing the kill chain. In other words, the future has to see a mix of manned and unmanned combat system. And the latter, of course, will call for stealth, automatic target recognition, and obviously automatic target attack. And BAE's recently revealed Project Tyrannus could be capable of meeting this requirement, but the current consortium does not yet include a sensor payload manufacturer, and development has got a long way to go. As an aside, and interestingly, the US Navy have now recognized that you can pack a lot more UCASs onto the deck of a carrier than you can manned aircraft. So the debate over JSF numbers will be reignited. But it would take another lecture to address the legal considerations enshrined in this developing vision of robotic warfare. I could mention space, but space, of course, is beyond the purview of all but a superpower. Although the UK's lead in lightweight small satellites indicates just what can be done for not too much money. Finally, air command and control. Air assets are at a premium, and the effects they can deliver are also at a premium. They are expensive and they are scarce, and it's vital that we maximize their contribution to the overall campaign. We apply the doctrine of centralized control exercised through an effective command and control structure motivated by mission command. But bridging the tactical operational level divide 
is about the transmission of information transmitted across the network once again. And it must bridge component seams and exchange information with coalition systems. For air, interoperability is a clear requirement because component boundaries do not exist in the air environment. Assets of different nations integrate in the same package to deliver combined effect and thereby avoid unnecessary duplication. And this helps us with the persistence equation. But this is definitely in contrast to the land and maritime environments where schemes of maneuver can be procedurally deconflicted by geography. And just to give you a flavor for that, there's the TLAM tracks on day one of the 2003 Iraq war. Where next then? Common themes weave through the core roles. All place a premium on situational awareness and self-protection. And clearly, where counter-air integrated operations and delivering a strategic effect are concerned, there is an additional premium on lethality. These cross-cutting characteristics are important because they provide one of the keys to affordability in terms of commonality of approach. But also, given the nature of future combat aircraft, such as Typhoon, JSF, and F-22, there will be few opportunities, well, actually no opportunities, to change the engine or airframe through life. But a significant requirement, and I stress requirement, to upgrade sensors, systems, and software so as to maintain a capability advantage against the threat and thereby enhance the flexibility of employment. In the case of JSF, capability enhancement will come entirely from changes to software, firmware, and sensor internal upgrade, things like laser technology. The architecture has been designed to cope with both a modern aircraft's insatiable demand for data and the ability to insert additional capability in the shape of noughts and ones, because that's what capability is. JSF uses the IEEE 1394 standard data bus, which transfers 400 megabits per second, compared with the one you're all familiar with, the 1553 data bus, which has a capacity of only one megabit per second. Incidentally, the one gigabit fiber channel system will be incorporated in the US E3 upgrade, and uh, in terms of technology, uh, that is showing us where data handling is going, but it leaves us with challenges. Now, I just want to focus on two aspects of technology to finish with, on situational awareness and a cross-cutting capability, and I just want to focus on radar and on electro-optics. In radar, everybody is now into active electronically scanned systems. Well, almost everybody. Because of their fast scan rates and their multiple agile beams, e-scan radars have high performance advantages in dealing with multiple small contacts in the air-to-air -air mode and with diffuse surface contacts in the air-to-ground mode. They have no moving parts and are inherently reliable and thus have lower through-life costs and they also provide potential capability enhancement in terms of electronic attack and data transfer. They are already fielded on the Block 60 F-16 and retrofitted on the F-15 and F-18. The key technology here is in fast, small, 
transmit receive modules to generate these very high scan rates. And this type of switching is common in mobile phone technology, particularly in the 3G era, and it relies on gallium arsenide devices. In essence, this gives us scalable technology. Let me show you where this is taking us, and I'll take a radar called PicoSAR as an example, because this is the most miniature of miniature radars. Happens to be a UK product. It's briefcase sized. It's an X-band radar with an internal power supply and its own cooling internally. It weighs in at 10 kilograms. Average tactical UAV, UAS, has a payload capability of about 60 or 70 kilograms. So you can see the significance of this radar. It gives data output at 100 megabits per second. So you need 100, you need 100 uh, 1553 data buses if that's what you chose to use. With selectable resolution down to one meter. It provides strip SAR mapping, spot SAR mapping, and GMTI, as you would expect, using a commercial off-the-shelf processor. The US Coast Guard has bought this radar's bigger brother, the Sea Spray, for their C-130s, and uh, I'll show you some results gained with the Pico SAR, which is currently being trialed by the US Army in Nevada. And remember, this thing weighs less than 10 kilograms, the huge advantage of eScan is that it generates the RF right up front on the scanner, so you're not faced with very high voltages and lots of waveguides weaving their way through your Typhoon bulkheads. I cannot state the ranges for commercial and security reasons. But the key point here is one of cost. Through life, the mean time between failures of an eScan radar is about 10 times better for a conventional analog radar, largely for the, um, the reasons I just talked about. In manufacturing terms, the transmit-receive modules, which are common technology with mobile phones, are available at commodity prices. And that was the big breakthrough on eScan. And the nature of eScans is that they continue to operate when one module fails. The Vixen eScan radar, which is being fitted to the South Korean A50, that's uh, an Anglo-Italian product, retails at about a million pounds. More sophisticated radars, such as the proposed E-Scan for Gripen, uses 750 of those modules, and uh, a Tornado GR4 would use about 1,000, and the E-Scan radar for Eurofighter would use about 1,400. And each of those costs around two million, uh, two million pounds which is uh, precisely the same, as out of interest, as the current CAPTA analog radar for Typhoon. So it is possible to generate capability without ramping up the cost, and also take an advantage in reduced through-life costs. And such radars, of course, have been used in the maritime and ground-based air defense environment for a number of years. But these miniaturized versions have applicability in the self-protection of armored vehicles as well. So we are opening a technological door, I feel. Second example on electro-optics of the type used in targeting pods for target recognition. And many here will have first-hand experience with tiled on the GR4 and the need to conquer blobology involved in adhering to tight rules of engagement over target recognition. The aspiration, then, is to achieve automatic target recognition in our fourth-generation systems. What's been fielded now 
is a pretty much third generation technology and uh, I'll explain to you the leap to fourth generation because that's now achievable using UK technology known as burst illumination lasers. And these operate in the 1 to 1.5 micron range and they gate their laser returns across small segments of the target. The trick then is to use algorithms to produce 3D imaging. It's currently laboratory technology which is tested in the field, but the required laser miniaturization, which is going to make fourth generation manufacturable, is well advanced. And uh, we'll see fourth generation EO in JSF, which actually carries this UK laser. Potentially also in the Lockheed Martin sniper pod and the Northrop Grumman Lockheed Lightning AT pod. Incidentally, both those pods cost about a million pounds a copy. Not a huge amount of money for the capability that they represent. There is no such growth path, sadly, to fourth generation for the Lightning III pod, which is currently being fitted to the Tornado under a UOR and has been chosen for the Astera air-to-ground capability in Typhoon. Now, here are some examples which, again, have applicability to the land environment. This is obviously at sea. The sea absorbs the laser, and therefore any object in the sea, and imagine you're doing search and rescue, shows up to you as your gated laser goes across it. This has been algorithmized to produce a 3D image, and actually, when you look at it on the video screen rather than through PowerPoint, you can read the number of the boat very easily. This one's interesting. This is not using the algorithms, and this is the gate moving backwards. And you can see it produces a 3D image of the tumble-down cottage there, and that's actually in front of Bass Rock. So the gate is moving further and further away. And that unlocks the physics to automatic target recognition. Now this one will make your eyes water, uh, and I've vanillaized it so it's not UK restricted. It's a camouflage net. It's now being lased, and the gate is moving further away, and you can now see what's inside the camouflage net. Now, both those technologies, incidentally, are uh, regarded as UK sovereign capabilities that under the Defence Industrial Strategy, uh, the UK wants to keep on shore. Um, so I hope you can see that future technology provides affordable routes to greater capability, but there is much to do with aircraft to adopt near open systems architecture to allow us to plug and play new technology in sensors and weapons. But we will only, only capitalize on this if we manage the through life capability through an entire sector. And the proposition here is that the Royal Air Force and Air Forces of that size should understand that their entire fast jet front line represents one sector. That allows industrial thinkers to de-risk capability between types, and it also, through a TLCM process, allows, again, through partnership, to guarantee availability. And if you put both those things at the same place, and preferably forward, then you will have, as you have with the tornado at Marham, the capability to generate availability and insert technology as it comes on stream. This is markedly different from the Cold War process whereby we had big midlife updates and big return to works programs. So a brief conclusion. I pose the question of what is a sensible insurance policy.
well. First, the world is simply too uncertain a place to go uninsured. Potential scenarios could call on all six roles of air power, and I'd particularly underline the importance of control of the air. Anything less than comprehensive cover across that lot will not do. Secondly, to judge by the NAO's analysis of the MOD's 2006 major project report, the UK is already paying the premium for comprehensive cover. The value of the top 20 products is some £44 billion, of which those related to aircraft and their weapon systems amounts to £28 billion, or 64%. So given the trajectory of technology and the application of through-life capability management appropriate capability, other than the full exploitation of space, will remain affordable. But even at that level, nations must have the will to pay the premiums. An average defense expenditure across Europe is still a real concern in this respect. Thirdly, and all that said, it is only the superpowers who can afford the resilience suggested by massive scale and highly desirable add-ons. For example, a long-range stealthy bomber of the type suggested by the USAF's 2018 requirement will remain beyond the reach of nations other than superpowers, as will the full exploitation of space. This represents a limitation in terms of readiness and responsiveness, but I've yet to be convinced that we will ever have the responsiveness of political decision-making in crisis management to make the lack of a capability a limiting issue, or lack of that capability. It's a bit like Sheila's Wheels counseling service. Nice to have, but not essential. Thank you very much.